0: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. I'm really excited about my guest today. Her name is Lisa Donovan. She is a James Beard award-winning food writer who wrote the memoir, Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger, but she's also an incredible pastry chef. Bill Addison, who's the food critic for the LA Times, who used to live in Atlanta, has called her one of the South's best pastry chefs. She made desserts at City House, Margot Cafe and Bar, and most famously at Sean Brock husk, where she was famous for her buttermilk chest pie. And in today's session, we talk about her recent diagnosis of celiac.
1: I mean, I'm a Southern baker, you know, and i built in French technique. And so everything is about this good quality wheat flour. And now I can't even barely touch this stuff.
0: How she likes to cook by instinct.
1: Like, I never measure vanilla paste. I never measure salt. I never measure, you know, there are things I just never measure. And I know how much I want at any given moment.
0: And what makes her desserts unique? They're never going to be
1: like fondant-like sculpted cakes. They're going to be traditional layer cakes. They're going to be delicious and they will look beautiful, as beautiful as I can get them. But primarily, they're going to be delicious.
0: So without further ado, here is my lunch therapy session with Lisa Donovan. Here we go. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for doing lunch therapy.
1: Thanks for having me, Adam. I'm very happy to be here.
0: (laughs) So, okay. I don't know if I'm giving you divulging secrets, but in our exchange, it seemed like you were going to New Orleans.
1: I'm in New Orleans. Yeah. I am um, on a self-imposed writing sabbatical uh, for the next couple of weeks. A friend of mine, has uh, an apartment that she is not using. Um, she bought a house recently, so it's sitting here. And I thought, well, that's free and easy, and I can go not spend any money and try to figure out how to, you know, continue my career after this very impossible year.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, how do you not spend money in New Orleans though? There's so much to eat there.
1: Well, I know. I say that, and then last <laughs> night, you know, last night we went out and ate at La Boca, which is like. I think it's like a chef's chef's kind of restaurant. Mm. You know, it's just this like great Argentinian steakhouse that's really, really, really good. And, um, you know, yes, I did not spend money.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I have a good friend who's going to be in New Orleans. He's going to be on the new um Folk that they're doing and they're shooting oh, it in New Orleans. So he's going to be there for like four or five months. And I am already planning my trip there because it's like good. there's so many restaurants I want to try.
1: So there's a lot of restaurants. I mean, the great thing is about New Orleans is this is kind of my second home. So I can kind of be here and not feel like I'm, you know, there's no sense of urgency when I'm here because, yeah. you know, I'm I'm here. It feels nearly almost as much as I'm in Nashville these days. So,
0: so can I ask what you're working on?
1: Uh, sure. I don't <laughs> know what kind of muddy, murky answer you're gonna get, but you can ask. <laughs> <laughs>
0: sure.
1: I mean, you know, I think where I'm at right now is um, I think I'm, I'm feeling a bit of an impatience to sort of move out of, like, the food space entirely, you know? Sure,
0: I've been there before.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, I've, I've worked in the restaurant industry for, you know, since I was 15 years old and, like, very professionally for the last 20 years, you know? And so mm-hmm. it's been, like... Um, There's there's more there's more here than that. And, Mm -hmm. um, and plus, but however, I understand how you know the world works and kind of the niche that you fall into. Mm you like it or not. And I always think
0: of that Gabrielle Hamilton quote from her book where she says, be careful what you get good at. You'll be doing it for the rest of your life. Exactly. And it's so true. And I, you know, if I had known that I never would have become a food blogger 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I'm trying to sort of be in this, uh, I'm trying to find the way to do it in a way that still feels gratifying for me. And I think my answer right now, you know, I've only been here for two two days and I've already sort of put some pieces together that look like, um, I think the real burden for me and the real like emotional burden, not like no one's putting it upon me, but sort of the burden I'm putting upon myself is uh, this urge to uh, talk about restaurant culture and mm-hmm. chef world. And there's a lot of anger there for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think what I'm doing this this sabbatical is wholly about remembering how to be in love with food and mm. separate food from restaurant culture.
0: That's um, really interesting. That's,
1: that's really, I think my job right now as, you know, someone that knows that, you know, I still, you know, and I, and, and frankly, like, I don't want to waste the, the, the decades of experience I have with food, you know, I yeah. mean, there, there is something to, to cultivate and mind for here. That isn't just my, deep, deep frustrations and, and, and heartache over, you know, what the restaurant industry does to, to people.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's funny. I relate to that because I've been in Hollywood for, Oh gosh, like since 2011 and trying to um, sell screenplays and TV shows and all this stuff. And now I'm sort of doing what you're doing with food where it's like, I'm trying to get back in touch with like, why did I enjoy storytelling in the first place? And why, you know, and so I'm kind of trying to go back to my roots. So I totally get that. Um, but uh, I wanted to congratulate you, though. I mean, you've you've had so much success already in this transition from chef to writer. I mean, you won the James Beard Award. You have a beautiful book that everybody was raving about. And so I'm curious um, what that's been like for you, just in terms of your sense of self and identity to now be known as a writer as much as you're known as a chef. Um, that,
1: that was the goal. That yes. was... the the goal um I feel like I was able to do it sooner than I thought I would be able to do it um Mm -hmm. which um has its ups and downs you know because there there was sort of this you know heat of the me too movement where um in the same way that I think people get categorized for their jobs not their work which Mm -hmm. I can see Things you know, my job was a pastry chef, my work is something that I feel is a little bit more broad. Um, and um, you know, getting your opportunities in a moment where you have chosen to finally say some things about your experiences in this culture mm-hmm. as a woman or. In any marginalized sense, you know, um, in the LGBTQ community and the BIPOC you know, community, any any I think any time you develop your voice in that way, as people's first experience of you, mm-hmm. a, yet another niche you fall into. And right. so it's been great. And I, of course, like, don't regret. Uh, and I feel very lucky to have um, been, you know, Adopted by an incredible publishing house, being with Penguin Press is a ridiculous dream, and um, and I, you know, have a great editor that I, I hope to continue to work with for a long time, and um, who understands, I think, sort of where I'm trying to go in mm-hmm. a creative way, uh, instead of um, you know always being in the chef category or always being in this. Um, you know, speaking to the women's movement category, um, part of what I want my work to be is telling stories of women. So that's something. And mm-hmm. if I ever get to publish non or you know fiction and things that aren't personal memoir, it will still be aligned with that. You know, there's a lot more freedom that you get though when you write about things in a fictionalized way. And oh shows. yeah kind of way that I'm hungry for. uh, It takes its toll writing about your person all of the time, Mm -hmm. Um, which is another sort of thing that I'm trying to sort of, Rework a little bit right now well you
0: seem like a perfect candidate for lunch therapy which is what you're on right now i
1: was like this is gonna be real therapy you get it
0: (laughs) well the nice thing is this is free and i don't charge anything i just you know invade your personal space and ask you lots of personal questions um starting with we'll start with what did you have for lunch today
1: you know, it's funny. I kind of started today, like every other day and wasn't really thinking about, which I guess is good. I, I was, didn't, didn't think about you asking that question until I was sitting there eating my very sad food. And then I was oh, like, gosh. I, I think Adam's probably going to ask me what I've eaten. But I've kind of, as I'm getting older, I actually don't eat a whole lot in the first part of the day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The first part of the day is like more about hydrating for me. Like I drink a lot of juice and water and coffee, which is the anti-hydration thing, but like <laughs> a lot of coffee and um, I just drink a lot from like, you know, seven to around noon. And then I have a lot of- Do you of- pee
0: a lot when you do that? Because like I pee all morning drinking a lot of water that and coffee.
1: The thing is like I'm having to intentionally drink a lot of water Um, I'm just not someone, there's a scene in, uh, did you watch Mad Men with any? Okay, well, I've watched, like, I've watched them sort of on a loop since they came out, and there's this one scene, I think it's, like, in season four, where he's at a diner with Peggy, and he's, they're drinking coffee, and the server keeps trying to give him water, and he finally takes a sip of the water, and he actually is, like, (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> like, like really visceral reaction on screen to how much he hates water. And that's like, really funny. My husband's always laughing at me. He's like, you, you have a tribe, you know, They're, I just, yeah. Hate water. So like, I have to like spend the first part of my day being really intentional about drinking water and getting hydrated so that I can go about the rest of my day and not think about it. Cause I really don't hmm. want to think about it. So you don't,
0: do you still not like water?
1: I hate water. I hate, like I literally, I have to choke it down. I really that's be- so
0: funny I love water I really like it it's so hydrating I guess that's like what it's supposed to do
1: oh you're so glowy you're, you're so-
0: <laughs> I think it is true but I pee all the time so I think I drink too much of it um well it's also funny because like the way you were just talking about coffee is like I have French friends who put out wine at dinner and don't put out water it's like just like you just drink wine you know
1: well there's some theories that suggest that water like you know doesn't help your digestion
0: that you should- oh yeah
1: and I'm eating all of the time so there's like
0: (laughs) (laughs) but you kind of avoided the question here which was what did you have for lunch
1: when I eventually start eating it's usually cold fruit especially when I'm in the south like it's hot you know and it's really hot in New Orleans right now so I always have fruit in the fridge that's really cold like cantaloupe that's already cut or watermelon that's already cut or mango that's already cut and I'll eat that with some coffee
0: Was that what you did today?
1: That's what I did today. And then when I start to get hungry, I had a really sad piece of gluten-free toast with some freshly ground peanut butter and honey on it. (laughs) And that was it. That's all I've eaten today.
0: Okay. So as your lunch therapist, I'm picking up on the word sad. (laughs) 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 you used a couple of times now to refer to your gluten-free toast. So tell me why you think it's sad.
1: Well, it's sad because uh, I hate that I have to eat gluten-free toast now. Um, I was diagnosed with Hashimoto about eight years ago, and then I wrecked the train and got diagnosed with something I'm still suffering, to say out loud, which is full-blown celiac. But like,
0: Oh, gosh.
1: Well, you know, I did it to my damn self, really. They gave me a warning like eight years ago. They are like, you have this, and you're going to really put... And I was like, no, it's fine. And I continued to be this, you know hard charging chef that you know I was a pastry chef too so like part of it was just my job but you know I was drinking a lot and eating a lot and traveling a lot and eating whatever anyone put in front of me and sick the whole time you Mm. know I was not feeling great if you look at pictures of me from like a couple of years ago I'm so like bloated from the inflammation and the swelling and Mm. I weigh the exact same as I did then but the before and after of like me changing this one thing about my diet is remarkable. But that's what- kind of
0: poetic or, or tragic in a way to be a pastry chef who then can't eat gluten, right?
1: It's tragic. It's really hard. And it's really hard too, because I mean, you know, we haven't had to go out. We haven't been able to go out a whole lot, but it's difficult to go to a restaurant and say to a server, I have an allergy. I don't yes. know why it's just a thing. Like I don't want to have that kind right. of limitation but i do and i can't am at it's at the point now where i can't go back so it's sad because i have to eat this gluten-free toast and what i'd really love to do is go to you know Belgard bakery and get a beautiful baguette and, and eat it you know as i'm walking home from the bakery and have this pizza, like perfectly idyllic morning with a baguette and some fresh butter but that's not my life
0: <laughs> so is it over i mean like can you literally not do that or will you sometimes do that and just suffer the consequences
1: it, uh, sometimes I get glutened and I know the protocol now, like I'll know, and I, I at least now know what it does. And I know like, oh, this will be about 72 hours of this struggle. And and I've found some tricks, like if I take a Benadryl because it started to become a little a little anaphylactic-y mm-hmm. um, I, I get throat sweats, and this is so boring. I'm so no,
0: scared. it's not. I actually find it very interesting. It reminds me a little bit of Grant Ackett's having tongue cancer, where it was sort of like a chef who you know needs his taste. And it's like for you being a pastry chef, it's like very to me. It's very poignant that now you're eating sad gluten free bread crazy. for breakfast.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's heartbreaking, and and it has also changed a lot about um, my like my drive. Has always been in pastry and in bread, and mm-hmm. I, and and I'm, I'm a, I cook a lot, like I love cooking, but the the real craft of cooking for me rests in pastry and mm-hmm. in baking. and I just can't bring myself to get excited about cooking gluten free or baking gluten free.
0: Yeah. Bread. And uh, what that- about like naturally gluten free desserts, that are like puddings oh, or yeah. yeah.
1: But you know, those aren't the thing. Like I I really just am still mourning mourning the loss. <laughs> so yes. uh, but I'm getting over it and I'm starting to get really excited. You know, that Alice Medrick came out with that beautiful book that was the, now, I don't even know that she used the term gluten free. It was just called Flavor Flowers. Mm-hmm. Talked about all these beautiful other flowers and sort of made it about something that wasn't a restriction, but you know, uh and you know, giving you access to like a whole other pantry. And mm-hmm. so Um, You know, when I start thinking about it that way, I can get really excited. Um, But it is, it's just like a total one, you know, it just changes everything about, I mean, I'm a Southern baker, you know, and I built in French technique, and so everything is about this good quality wheat flour, and Mm. now I can't even barely touch the stuff, so.
0: But it seems like it overlaps neatly with your career shift, too, that as you were already thinking about moving away from restaurants to writing... It's yeah. actually like, well, now what you did in those restaurants, you couldn't necessarily do anymore. So it's kind of like, makes it was, easier. For yeah. sure.
1: Like there, it definitely is like, a, well, there's no going back
2: to that. right? <laughs> oh. Or
0: if you did go back to it, I guess like creatively, I mean, there yeah. must be some kind of creative opportunity there to sort of maybe take what you know, and then apply it to yeah. you know, gluten free baking. I don't know if that's exciting to you, but I'm sure there's plenty of chefs out there who are doing that. <laughs>
1: it is and it isn't you know i can get you know i still have daydreams um i know i don't think i have daydreams that last very long about having a bakery anymore um because that takes a really particular kind of energy Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh really deep deep like never-ending not sleeping passion for the the you know I just don't have that anymore and Mm -hmm. I I, you know I know a lot of bread bakers who do and I love watching them but I'm you know I'm so tired and middle-aged now that I'm (laughs) I I can't imagine I think we're the
0: same age so don't say we're middle-aged because I I was researching you and we're exactly the same age so I'm not there yet
1: (laughs) (laughs) but I just uh like when I think about the ways I, I want to cook it's simpler now yeah you know, it's it's
0: simpler now. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because this is something I'm curious about, is um, it feels like being a chef or a pastry chef in particular is about pleasing people in a way. It's like you're you know you're catering to your customers. You're, you know, you want you want to make people happy supposedly. But then I feel like the writing that you've been doing is sort of provocative, and it's sort of you know, I mean, especially talking about the industry and and you know, and also basically being willing to put yourself out there and. Be, you know, call people out and stuff. So I wonder like if those two instincts are at war within you or d- how do you make peace with those two sides of yourself?
1: Um, I don't know that I have.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Um, I, I think there is, there is a part of me that um, does really work in food because I have a deep sense of wanting to provide for people more mm-hmm. than people these people I think it's interesting more like they're taking kind of um uh urge than it is a pleasing kind of mm. urge. you know and there is you know of course I, I I love hospitality and I love true hospitality and I love the sense of like what looking at a room and seeing what anyone might need in any given moment and knowing the answer and mm. knowing that I give that is a real powerful feeling for me. Like it's a real it's a thing that I really love that is a gift of mine, like and a gift of certain people. Like and I can recognize other people who sort of are hardwired for that hospitality sort of urge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love when I find them, and they're actually working in hospitality. We get, you know, we get disheartened. I think, and we don't stay very long sometimes, or we stay too long sometimes. Um, What's but- the? Div-
0: I just have to ask though, because like, that's really interesting to me. But like, what? How would you distinguish the difference between taking care of people versus pleasing people? Because mm. I guess you distinguish that, but I'm curious how you distinguish that.
2: I
1: think I distinguish that by saying um, pleasing people feels very. Um, generic and surface mm-hmm. taking care of people and caretaking is something a little deeper where you're not inserting yourself in the need you're just providing the tools to fulfill the need right
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i think when you're trying to please someone it's also sort of a selfish need as well for something and when you when you are truly truly aiming for true hospitality in a caretaking kind of way you're not the the one that needs anything from it, you know. Mm. And, so, and so I think you know when I think of really true hospitalitarians like Partistit, and you know, I mean, there are a, a thousand I could name, but Partistit is sort of my like ultimate ideal of of who, how to set a tone that is watchful and careful and considerate and generous. Is she in Birmingham? Birmingham she had she's uh Frank she yeah. and have uh Fan and Chez Fonfon and uh, Highlands and uh, Bottega
2: okay
1: and, uh, and she's just someone that whenever I think about true caretaking and hospitality sh- her name comes to mind because she can look easily and she won't insert herself but mm. if- you know what you have something that you were about to realize you needed and in, in a, in a moment and, and you, all of your, all of your things are and all of your needs are anticipated. And it's not to say like, um, the beauty of someone like Pardis stit um, is there's, it's not, it's not like a spoil. It's mm-hmm. just the way she interacts with people all the time, which mm. is to watch and to care and to, you know, and to sit at a table if you're having lunch with someone and to recognize that, like, their, you know, their water is halfway full, your mm-hmm. water is a quarter of the way full, well, you fill up their water first and then you fill up yours. Right. And then- there's just a you know there's just a, a, a flow that you can get into that feels really nice to offer of yourself for
0: people. Well, what I'm getting from what you're saying, which is interesting because it's making me think about Bill Addison. I was reading his article about you and the way he described your desserts because it sort of feels like what you're saying is it's, it's not about ego or narcissism. It's about just sort of putting something in front of somebody that's honest and real. and, and, and I forget how he described your desserts but that he, like, how much he loved them. but it seemed like he was talking about sort of how they weren't flashy or show-offy. They were kind of rustic, I I guess.
1: I just wanted things to be delicious and comfortable and not intimidating. And I really, really, that, those were sort of my, um, you know, even when I was in the big leagues and, you know, people were tweezering, you know, bee pollen on like little, <laughs> one little spot of a steak or something, you know, like I I wanted every single guest to feel a sense of like utter and complete comfort
2: mm-hmm. before they
1: left the restaurant. Um, I don't deal in pretensions and I really hate food that does. <laughs> I've mm-hmm. gotten to a point now where like, I don't care how delicious it is. If, if it looks like I have to think for three minutes about the right way to eat it, I'm just, I, I lose interest. You mm-hmm. know, I lose interest really quickly in that kind of stuff. You now I have a lot of friends that cook that way and make beautiful dishes. Um, I just prefer to make you feel really comfortable and give you something hopefully that is really also full of flavor. And, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I just, I never wanted anyone to feel intimidated by a dessert. You know, I wanted them to feel like that, that same satisfaction that you get when you're sitting on the couch and, you know, you're just in your cozies and you're in, your like, you have a, you have a spoon and the pint of ice cream and it's, mm-hmm. as you're satisfying something else besides just wanting to have something sweet, there's something else there that dessert can do if you let
2: it.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I just went last night to the Girl and the Goat, um, which is Stephanie yeah. Izard's restaurant. And the sure. dessert, the desserts were my favorite part of the meal, because they were just so I mean, everything was delicious. But it was just like, you yeah. know, she had this popcorn, like Sunday kind of thing. It was all just very simple, but beautiful. And so I, I get what you're saying. So uh, you have a book um, called Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger. And so for people who are listening, who haven't read it, I'm curious if you could just talk us a, Talk us through a little bit about like your childhood where you grew up and just some of that stuff just so we can check those boxes.
1: (laughs) Uh, I'm an army brat, so I grew up all over. I was born in Panama near the canal zone. And then from there we went to Germany and I spent most of my childhood overseas. And then we moved to, it was actually very funny and I write about this in the book, but like when I get really confused about sort of like my seemingly like (laughs) dichotomous personalities like there's a part of me that's you know really loves classic you know there's a little bit of a classicist in me and then mm-hmm. there's whole like shit kicking anarchist as well Oh
0: wow okay
1: and like and they're always diametrically opposed and I'm always sort of like grappling with these two parts of myself and that want to sort of have this like pastry chef you know like they're they're are very two clear parts of who I am mm. actually two children are Um, almost damn near perfect personifications of each side of that but um, really
0: that's fascinating too (laughs) (laughs) my
1: son is like incredibly collected he's a little persnickety he's hilarious but he's got really tight sort of humor and really quick-witted and sharp and clean and precise and can render like as an incredible artist and can render anything almost from life I mean he's really got a great brain in that way my daughter is just like an explosion of like wildness and (laughs) and and they're both really beautiful and really incredible um and I'm like my mom actually called it she was like she's like you know I never realized like how much like how those two people are actually like the the halves of your personality
0: (laughs) I I love that I'm jealous I wish I had two kids that were two halves of my personality. I don't know what they would be, but, um, I'm curious, is there, are there two dishes that you make that embody those two sides of you? Like, is there one that you make when you're feeling more, um, you know, controlled and one that you make when you're feeling a little wilder?
2: Um,
1: no, I think my pastry, I think like my, my baking kind of falls into this one category of, like being, I think, I think the way where you can recognize it in my baking is not necessarily in one dish, but in the way that each dish is presented. So you like, like, for example, um, there, you know, primarily like my catalog of recipes are very rooted in this comfort food idea, right? Southern, you know, layer cakes and chess pies and cookies and things that seem really familiar, but Where it becomes really sort of the part of my brain that needs sort of this technical um, astuteness and tightness Mm -hmm. and obsession and um, strange sort of, you know, fixation part Mm -hmm. of my personality is the technique. So there's a lot of French technique. There's a lot of really deeply practicing, you know layers of technique to get those custards just right, to get those layers just right of the pastry to get you know and so what I I think what I ended up kind of naturally doing was taking things that made me feel really comforted and warm and and loved as a recipe and as a as a food item and then really reworking it from the back end with this really sort of um semi-obsessive you know, technical, you know,
0: fixation. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I was watching Baking with Julia yesterday. It was on this, I have this app on my Apple TV called Pluto, which shows old episodes of like cooking shows and stuff. So, and I was watching her cook with the guy that wrote the book Death by Chocolate. And this was like in the 90s, early, I guess it was in the 80s. And he was, he was shocking her because he made a raspberry puree and he's like, I'm going to do something very modern. And he flung it onto the plate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she was like oh my goodness she says, it looks like blood <laughs> but I guess when we were talking about being like wild in the kitchen like I guess I was thinking of like you know swooping like sauces and stuff but it feels like your food isn't like that at all
1: no no I mean I uh, no and I, I don't think that's my personality so much as just um and I never worked in restaurants I think that would have allowed that on the right suite. You know, I never worked in places that were swoopy, splashy kind of right. places.
0: So, so when you, when you so I know that we talked a little bit about your childhood, but I guess I'm curious, like, can you walk us through the journey from cooking at home as a kid to yeah. being, working at some of the top restaurants in the country? Like, how did that happen?
1: Well, the reason I bring up this whole weird dichotomous personality is because I was sort of raised in this very German, cold, classic, antiquated, you know, and I was eating pastries in Vienna that are like, you know a little stodgy but really flavor and like you know they they mean something these desserts Mm -hmm. and then I would we would flop back over to South Georgia or North Georgia whichever one that my dad needed to go to training and so I would have these experiences of like classic European you know finesse and then I would go to the south and Mm. it literally was just like Shit kicking redneck boys, like with like warm oysters in a cooler, and like you know, and it was just a whole different. Mm. Like I was flip flopping between these two worlds, and when I think about my childhood, I can see the why of mm-hmm. of, of, of me <laughs> in a lot of
0: ways. Like, well, it makes it makes me think about the way that like biography gets imprinted on our food in a weird way, like oh. that your personal experiences get channeled through the food that you make, which is so cool.
1: Yeah, totally. And I can remember those days walking through like the, you know, the the square in in any in, 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 in Austrian city, Salzburg and, and like being obsessed at 10 years old with mm-hmm. the cases and the pastry cases. And I didn't I still don't really actually have much of a sweet tooth. I don't dessert's not my go-to, honestly. Really? No. Oh, you're full,
0: full of so many contradictions. I'm thinking I need like three hours with you to get through That's all right. this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> much uh for myself
1: sometimes but like i always go to salty salty is my i'll always go to salty uh anytime but but i think i was obsessed with like the presence of them like they're incredible to see these like cakes in a window that Mm -hmm. are I mean, they don't, they don't look like they could be real. They don't look like you could eat them. You know, they're so beautifully done. And as an American kid, like I'd never seen anything like that, you know, Mm -hmm. and they don't, you know, literally grew up eating little Debbie cakes. Right.
0: Me too. Yeah. Like
1: Hershey bars was my chocolate and that's fine. But then you go over there and you're like, oh, (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
1: there's something different and there's something real. And there's something like someone just spent a whole morning building this gorgeous thing that someone's just going to have with their coffee and it's incredible
0: like, and there's something so more sustainable about that way of it of indulging where it's like a beautiful piece of cake that you have in the afternoon versus like picking out on a bag of like hershey samplers like i did at my grandmother's house growing up so <laughs> yeah i'm very jealous so okay so you went to vienna you took in all this stuff but were, were you cooking like as a kid like were you cooking for your family were you cooking like when did it all kick in
1: I can remember thinking I was a magical genius because my mom and dad got a toaster oven
0: when
2: <laughs> I was
1: like in the fourth grade and I li- literally invited kids over for this. I was like, you guys, because I started putting Chips Ahoy cookies in the toaster oven. And warming them up just a little bit, mm. right? just enough where like the edges got just a little burned.
0: Wow. Got like, it.
1: It was like step one. And then step two was like putting a marshmallow on top
2: and
0: like
1: drilling wow. it. And so like it became this thing, like I would invite kids over and we would like come up with Chips Ahoy toaster oven concoction. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. My mom
0: once bought me um this thing at the grocery store. It was called Dolce Fruta, and it was basically like magic shell and I remember like dipping grapes in it and like putting making chocolate covered grapes and thinking I was a genius. Like, oh my god, this is incredible. <laughs> so I know exactly what you're talking about. But yeah, keep going. I keep interrupting you, so keep telling your story. <laughs>
1: that was like that. Uh, no, otherwise we, you know, I ate a lot of Burger King on posts. There was always a Burger King, and mm-hmm. so like I was always eating Burger King. And uh, my mom would cook us dinner at night, and it was traditional, you know lower to middle class family dinners a mm-hmm. lot of you know a lot of tv dinners and a lot of casseroles which i love you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: chicken casserole that like no one would not like that chicken casserole <laughs> right it's just there's like there's there's no way to not like it um, um but yeah and then i started really started getting into baking um later i knew i loved eating and I didn't know what to do with that because that's not a thing a girl is supposed to love, especially mm-hmm. growing up then, you know, like sure. you weren't supposed to, and I was a dancer and I really wasn't supposed to love eating. And I loved, I loved eating. I've always loved eating.
0: It's like being a gay man now. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Happens, uh, I mean, a lot of my gay guy friends, guys, I think in particular, yeah. but, uh, are having a hard time sort of with that relationship. Sure. Yeah.
2: That's
1: really familiar to like Being a teen in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. Like, it just wasn't a thing you were allowed to do. And all of my friends were like so tragically skinny. And it was the Kate Moss era. Mm -hmm. And like, and I don't know. I remember I also got tragically thin in order to try to keep dancing. And my dad did this really great thing that I will always really be grateful to him for, um, you know, I'm kind of, I'm not a tall girl, but I'm a sturdy girl, you know, mm-hmm. and like, I am a weight now that I'm like, Oh, just, I carry my weight. Fine. Like, it's great. I'm five, six and I can be this weight and I'm totally happy. But back then I was still this weight and I was trying to be a more petite woman so that mm-hmm. I could dancing. And I eventually got down to like 102 pounds, which wow. for my friend is unthinkable. No. And, you know, was very thin and was very wispy and you know and I could do all the beautiful things and I didn't have you know anything moving around when and I. Was this was
0: getting... ballet you're talking about and yeah. was that was that encouraged like by your teachers to lose weight I mean were they pushing you yeah. to do that
1: wow. well culturally yes like you just you just knew like if you were not the right size you weren't going to get rolls you weren't going to get the front you weren't going to you definitely weren't going to get the pas de deux. You weren't going to get to, right. you know, you weren't going to get to do much. You were going to mm-hmm. be background filler. And the bigger you were, the further back you got. And the reality was I should have been a modern dancer. And I had teachers that tried to push me into that space. And I was like, no, I'm a ballerina.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it feels like there's a place for that now. In like 2021, there should be like a body positive ballet, like a ballet that's like for I mean, all shapes and sizes.
1: Yeah. I mean, we can move, you know. It's yeah. Not- there's not it's not the problem but my dad did this great thing um where uh, when I got really thin he took me to a dietician and um that's when I started really thinking about food and thinking about like the power of food and she was really incredible I had to see her once a week and the goal was to like for me to gain like 15 pounds which was kind of dumb like I you know but whatever like I'm I'm glad we're in a space where we don't clock women's numbers the way we used to or people's sure. numbers the way we used to but like back then there was like a weight that you had to be that was health healthy mm-hmm. um and we know more now which is very good and um but she was so useful in helping me get excited about food to like empower myself and I started getting really excited about learning about you know which proteins and which carbohydrates like make you like stronger and healthier. Mm. you're easy easy to digest if you eat this with this it works if you eat this with this it really doesn't work and like and so I started thinking from a really young age about food in that way like
0: you and- seem like you were always a good student like whether you're doing ballet and you wanted to be good at ballet and then now you're shifting and like wanting to be good at nutrition yeah. like
1: yeah I think I was a good I'm a good learner but I'm not a great student in the same oh, okay way. I, I try to take care of myself, but I'm a shitty patient.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Got it. Got it. There's all these funny distinctions between like pleasing people versus taking care of them and being a good student versus being a good learner. But I like, I like these distinctions, you know, cause they're, yeah. they make them more specific.
1: Yeah. I might be a bad student actually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause, but I think, be, but it's actually ties into like the people pleasing. Cause it's like being a good student is about pleasing your teacher. Being yeah. a good learner is about pleasing yourself. So I get that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was a big beginning for me. And then it kind of rolled from there. I started really enjoying just, I mean, doing dumb stuff like baking from boxes and, mm-hmm. you know, trying to sort of like, I would bake from a box, but then I'd be like, I don't like the frosting. I'm going to mm. make my own frosting and I started like taking it apart to where like, I just wasn't satisfied with any store-bought thing. I wanted to make it all. And also I started to get nostalgic for growing up in Europe and, having just the ease of walking down the street and getting like a beautiful brioche in
0: mm-hmm. any, any
1: time of the day you know and, what's and a brioche brioche is just like a little roll like a little it's just like a demi baguette but even smaller and it's like always like it's always like you, you know like um when you make like a um, like a the really thin brittle like a mm-hmm. glass glassy sugar brittle, and it just cracks. It's yeah. like, it's, it's always that kind of crack mm. right open and it has a smell that, it only smells like that in Germany. Like it's just, <sighs>
2: right. it is a
1: beautiful little roll. And traditionally you would like shove it full of like deli meats or cheeses, some mustard and eat it like that. And that's like what I grew up eating in Germany were these like little brochen with like yellow mustard or you know, I was very American, but yellow mustard—they always had better mustard. But I was, I, I <laughs> they will choose yellow mustard over every mustard. <laughs> right. Um, a nice piece of cheese, some deli meat, and then you just eat
0: it. And like, was it sugar on the outside that made it crack like that? No, it was just it was just the bread, like the actual. <laughs> Wow. So, I mean, it makes me think a little bit about Julia Child, like coming from Pasadena and going to France and having Sol Mounier for the first time and that, like opening her mind, but you had your mind opened at a young age, but then you were taken away from it. And so you were trying to recreate it for yourself.
1: Yeah. A lot of, actually entirely my baking started because I wanted to make that bread and Mm -hmm. I wanted to have those pastries again. And like cookies, there are German cookies that only come out during Christmas time, Mm again like pretty stodgy and very gingery and very the texture is always a little tough you know they're very
2: german Uh, and did you
0: show a talent right away like did you start making this stuff and like your family was like whoa lisa like you've got a gift or was it more like it was a gradual kind of thing
1: oh what a nice thought i don't think my family was ever like oh lisa wow about (laughs) any.
0: yeah mine either but my my name's not lisa so that doesn't really make sense
1: (laughs) man like we're the same age i just don't know that we grew up in an era where anyone gave a shit what we were doing but, right
0: <laughs> well i'm i'm jewish so my parents were smothering me all the time with attention but, but they were very like they wanted me to to go a certain way um so it was a little different
1: anybody really was keeping an eye on me or right like They were there and my mom would be so mad if she heard me say that, but they were all distracted with their own lives. My parents were young parents and they were great for us and they were great parents and they took very good care of us. But, you know, I mean, they got literally, I was talking to my parents uh, just last week, they came up for, um, they came up for a visit and um, we were talking about how they got started and they met in August at 17 years old and were married by October. My dad dropped out of high school. They've been married ever since, since 17. Can you imagine?
0: Yeah. And then they
1: had us just a couple of years later. So they were like, "Who knows what?" Was my good. mom was
0: 18 when she married my dad too. So yeah, it's very similar <laughs> stories. And we both wear glasses too, so we have a lot in common.
1: Might be the same person. <laughs> I think
0: so. Uh, okay, so wait, when did you start working in professional kitchens?
1: Um, Well, I've always. I, I think I've always worked in kitchens. I, I took my first job at 15. I wow. was a potato peeler for a, a family buffet called Park Place in Dahlonega, Georgia. Um, and then worked at a Hungry Howie's pizza place. <laughs> and I was like, and I, there was something, and this is really dumb, but it was one of those moments where I actually got scared at how good I was. I could run both ovens both deck ovens on a busy Saturday night and just I could move so fast mm. and and all of a sudden I was running the I just was there to like work the cash cashier like it was a summer job. I was just mm-hmm. gonna you know I gonna add up people's stuff and get them out the door and all of a sudden I had to jump on the deck one night and that's where I stayed and I was fast and good and I could mm-hmm. spin pizzas and get them out the door and then I was like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> this is not what I want to be good at.
2: <laughs>
0: right well I'm curious in terms of the two sides of your personality that you talked about like is the ability to do that like more of the wild side or is it more of the controlled side like where where did that come from within you to be able to do that
1: I'm very good at chaos, chaos. I'm really good at, yeah I'm really yeah. good at like seeing something and knowing how to hopefully insert myself in a positive way like mm-hmm. I'm not Like I'm the bot like I'm not trying to be the leader, but I know where I can go. So fucking (laughs) help. Where I'm like, oh I can I can lock this down and I'll like find the space where I can solve that one problem I'm a really big problem solver like everything I want to do is about solving problems I'm just driven to solve problems it's a very blue collar thing
0: no I get that well also like there's something about that energy of like being in a physical space where there's real physical things to do which runs completely counter to like what you're doing now which I you know sitting in front of a blank screen (laughs) and just having to type words it's like sometimes like when I'm doing that I'm like I, I wish I was in the kitchen like running around like turning burners on and off so like uh-huh. do, do you sometimes feel that way when you're writing
2: I feel that way all the time
1: when I'm writing yes. is um because I think the constant like hurricane in my brain and it's and I don't even mean that in a noble way like I wish I could organize myself better I wish mm-hmm. I could you know The only space I feel truly organized right now, and I'm hoping to get there with writing, I'm getting closer with writing, but the the only space that I am truly organized physically and mentally and emotionally is in the kitchen. All my boxes are locked.
0: Will (laughs) you tell me about that? I'm so curious because like having had the experience that you've had and being such a celebrated chef, like, so when you go in, like what was the last meal that you cooked that was like a real meal? And like, and what was that like? And how do you go about it? (laughs)
1: I mean, now I, you know, I basically just cook for my family now, which yeah. is really nice. And uh, my parents were in town and uh, my dad said that he wanted some steak. And so I went to the butcher and got a uh, really nice um, tri-tip and uh, I had, he had brought some, he's a, he calls himself a gardener, but he has a full-blown farm in Northeast wow. Florida. I mean, he brought up about four pounds of red potatoes. And I had just gotten some uh crimson okra from my friend um who grows it down the street from my house. Um and what else did we have? Um I made some cornbread. Wow. And, um and it was a really simple meal. And I just, you know, my mom gets overwhelmed by cooking really easily, and she even gets overwhelmed by me cooking, and I'm like, it's it's okay like this is i'm happy to do this not only does it make me happy but it's actually really easy for me mom like it doesn't stress me out the way it stresses you out but so like my kitchen is very small it's like a very small galley kitchen i've been in in kitchens on boats truly that are bigger (laughs) So, (laughs) so there's no space but what i have is a very organized system i have all my tools um exactly where I need them to be. I've got four different kinds of cutting boards that all live in one space. I've got one booze block that I always work on and then the other cutting boards go on top of the booze block. Mm -hmm. all of my cast irons are in this one corner all of my spices are in this one space like I have to be really careful and I've sort of reassigned I've got a, actually like a metro rack in my kitchen that I pull out and pull in of my laundry room and it's got all of my pantry because I don't actually have a lot of cabinet space so all of my things are organized in nice little um I call them restaurant containers because they remind me of like when you go to like certain restaurants, they have these little plastic containers that have all of their Mm -hmm. uh, high quality plastic containers with all the labels. So I've got all of my shit labeled and organized so that I can just grab it easily. Um, But it just makes for quick, it makes for a meal like that, which seemed to my family like, whoa. I mean, the the longest thing, the thing that took the longest was just, I always let my um, meat. So I always season my meat really well and just let it sit at room temperature. I like chop a lot of garlic, cut up some onions in big chunks so that I don't have to peel, like worry about scraping them off. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Uh, Olive oil, salt, black pepper, and rub, 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 really get that meat massaged and let that sit Mm -hmm. with a towel over it um, at room temp for several hours, you know? And then I cook it, you know? (laughs) And so like, I let it sit for about an hour so that it can come to room temp and sit in that marinade and I'll go drink a glass of wine and visit. And then I'll go into the kitchen, get the vegetables prepped. And everything was just a high roast. I wasn't trying to do anything fancy. I seasoned everything really well. Uh And then I roasted the okra and the potatoes, um, whipped up the cornbread, which is a muscle memory at this point, you know. And so everything's just a, a move, you know. Like yeah. I'm warming the cast iron skillet while I'm seasoning the vegetables, and then I pull out the cast iron skillet and pour the batter in. And mm-hmm.
0: it's like and, a dance. It's like when you were a dancer. It makes me think that you're dancing through your kitchen, you know.
1: And and always trying to like, I've got only got one oven at home, and it's a regular janky ass oven. It's nothing special. So I'm mm-hmm. always thinking about the temperature, and especially in the summer, I want the oven on as little as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't have a fan because it's a shitty kitchen. And so I'm always having to sort of think about like airflow and like how to keep mm-hmm. everything from like steaming out the living room, which is like right there. And,
0: well, it uh, makes me think a little bit about the way you describe it Um with- you know, the way that you said that she kind of walks into a restaurant or walks into her restaurant, sees the whole room and sees everything there. And it feels like you have that sort of like Terminator vision, <laughs> like, you know, in your kitchen, it's like, okay, this is roasting. This has got to go. The steak is marinating that, you know, it's like, see, you see it all happening at once.
1: There's, I think, I think for me, the people who I love and I'm drawn to the most, and it's because I, I you know, I love people who are in their head all of the time, yeah. but my favorite people who, cook food and are in food are in it with their whole bodies Mm -hmm. their whole bodies are engaged you know and it's you know it's about touch and smell and hearing and feeling and you know and it's um the whole experience you know my guests even it's just my parents like I just want to make sure they're getting the right smell you Mm know I want them to smell you know, I make sure that there's no droppings on the bottom of my oven before I turn it up to 475. Right. And I, you know, just a little stuff that matters to me that mm-hmm. like, I think, you know, maybe the rest of the 75% of the rest of the world to think about, but like certain folks do,
0: you know? but, but it goes back to you wanting people to feel cared for and not necessarily trying to please them, but just sort of making them feel at home and comfortable. Yeah. So it makes sense. I can't believe how much time has flown by, by the way, like we're almost done with our <laughs> session and yeah. I have so much more I want to ask you. So I wanted to ask you, I have two questions. Um, one was about, oh, like being in a kitchen with other people versus being by yourself, like being in a restaurant kitchen where there's like lots of people running around versus being alone in your own kitchen? Like, where are you happiest?
1: Well, the the great thing about being a pastry chef is that typically you're pretty alone in the
0: kitchen, mm-hmm.
1: you know? So I, you know, I only worked on the line a marginal amount of, you know, my experiences. I mean, I would train my pastry cooks to work pastry during the night and be there. Um, and I don't mind that energy. It's fun. And I love doing events with other people. And I love being in a space where like you're, you know you're working depending on who the people are but typically mm-hmm. i'm with like my crew i'm with like chidi kumar and rebecca wilcombe and you know i'm with like my best friends we mm-hmm. are so like always blaring music and i mean those are basically the only things i say yes to anymore right, right.
0: if it's going to be fun for you and not yeah. dealing with like toxic restaurant culture
1: yeah and there, yeah. it's always women you know yes there, there are men i love cooking with um Jason Stanhope in Charleston, South Carolina is someone I love cooking with. I cooked with him. The last event that I think all of us did was Charleston food and wine of 2020. Um, what's, his, what's
0: his restaurant?
1: Uh, Fig and Charleston. Oh yeah.
0: I went there by myself when I was passing through Charleston and I loved it. I thought it was fantastic.
1: It's high tomato season right now. And he does this beautiful, every year he does this beautiful tomato, like, Home feed mm. art sort of thing, and it's just perfect. Uh, he's he's I think one of the best chefs in the world.
0: In the, really, yeah. In no, I really liked it there. I thought it was so cozy and elegant, mm-hmm. but not pretentious. Um, yeah. Okay, wait. Well, the other question I wanted to ask you is oh, is it, and this is like a longer question, but we still have a little time, which is it was about like developing your personal style through you know going from uh, mm-hmm. like the buffet that you started peeling potatoes at to being at Husk mm-hmm. or in these you know high-end, re- higher, well-regarded restaurants and having a voice, like, where did that voice start to emerge, and when did that start to happen?
1: Um, I, you know, I was kind of really trying to focus on technique, and I, you know, before I started working professionally in pastry and restaurants, I was, like, way back in the day, it's so common now, but it was very weird back then, but I was so grateful, and it was something that I think was unusual, because I was, Um, Unusual, but not unusual in a town like Nashville. One of the great things about Nashville is like this real urge that everyone has to support cottage industry and Mm -hmm. to, you know. And I was, you know, I was a cocktail server at a shitty college bar and, Mm -hmm. and it was terrible and when i would go home i would have you know one of my kids i have to take i'd have to do like drop off pick up my husband would work during the day i'd work at night well it still wasn't enough money but i was i compensated for that um even with all of the hours we were working we still were struggling and so i started running a bake shop out of my kitchen and i would do um I would do cakes and breads and sell things to my neighbors and they would um, make special requests. And it's, it's funny because I, I sort of never really think about it, but I was doing a lot of gluten-free baking Mm -hmm. back
2: then. Really? (laughs)
1: and i've been thinking i've been recalling it a lot lately because there were a lot of um kids with allergies this was one sort of the allergy culture we started seeing it with the young kids a lot mm-hmm. and a lot of and there were a lot of vegans in my neighborhood and stuff like that and so this is I, in nashville mm-hmm. okay yeah uh and you know i would make a lot of vegan gluten-free dairy-free you know cakes and um yeah and I my 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 caveat was like they're never going to be they're never going to be like fondant like sculpted cakes they're going right. to be traditional layer cakes they're going to be delicious and they will look beautiful as beautiful as I can get them but primarily they're going to be delicious
0: Yeah I'm
1: like that's my
0: priority So <laughs> how do you make how do you make your cuz like it's funny like I remember the city bakery in New York used to have a chocolate chip cookie and now now they're closed sadly. And I, I think the New York times, David Leet at the New York times, like uncovered their secrets and like, and wrote about how they did it. And like, they aged their cookie dough for three days and I've done all that. And I've copied that recipe and I've done it, you know, with different kinds of butter, European style butter, and I Mm -hmm. can never ever get it to taste the way that it tasted at the city bakery. And I'm curious for you, are there things that you do or like little touches that you do that you think make your food taste specifically like your food? Or is, I mean, how does that all work?
1: I hope so. I think, (laughs) I I mean, that's the hope, right? Like your food tastes like your food. Um, One of my, one of the biggest compliments I ever got was when um, food and wine put my hand pie on the cover. And this was just February of last year, which it seems like a decade ago now, but my daughter saw it and she was like, you know, mama, I, if I didn't know that was your hand pie, I would know that was your hand pie.
0: Love that. That's so cool.
1: It's just like, she's like, that's yours. Like no one else's hand pie looks like that. And I was like,
0: (laughs) that's amazing. Yeah. Uh,
1: So I I don't know if that just comes from, I don't know. uh, Consistency of like, I don't know, like of people talking about, I don't know. I don't know where, what, I don't know the answer to that. I hope, I guess I hope that it tastes like my food.
0: <laughs> well, I think based on the story you talked to, I mean, based on this whole session, it seems like there, there's a combination of um, intense research and study and like wanting to get all the information and really go deep on like what you're looking yeah. at, but then also really trusting your instincts and like really being in touch of, like with your pleasing yourself. And so I think that combination probably- creates the food that you make
1: yeah it does and I and I I do know by now um how to throw things together mm-hmm. and it'll be like 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 I never measure vanilla paste I never measure salt I never measure you know there are things I just never measure and I mm. know how much I want in any given moment based on like I just roasted some plums uh to put on top of um uh, what did I make? Um, oh, I made um, Elizabeth David's almond cake. No, sorry, Lindsay, Lindsay shares almond. Oh cake. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I made Lindsay shares almond cake and changed it up a little bit. It was gluten free, and then also just um, messed with the almond paste a little bit. But um, but was making the plum uh, jam like compote to go on top, and the plums were really tart, and so that informed everything right mm-hmm. so, like I know what I want those plums to taste like I know how to push them in that direction and that's why recipes don't always work because you mm-hmm. have, to have an informed decision there like you have to be part of those plums like you have to say like well this cake is actually like perfectly sweet so I actually wanted to stay a little tart but I really want the vanilla to come out because of this and so I put a little right. extra vanilla a little bit less sugar you know like and so totally,
0: I, just, I totally relate to that. I mean, like I get, I make a lot of salads in LA because I live in LA and people mm-hmm. are like, what did you put in your salad? Cause I'll put it on Instagram and I'll be like, olive mm-hmm. oil, vinegar, salt, pepper, but it's like, it, they want me to like give them more information. It's like, well, I just season it and like taste it. And if it's like salty, then I, or not salty enough, I'll add a little more, but yeah, I totally get that way of cooking.
1: You know, I've been looking at your salads; They all look great. Oh, and thank I, you so much. Salad, <laughs> You know salad is actually the best place people should start yeah because baking's too intimidating for everybody everyone's like whoa you're gonna ruin it and fine okay it's not always true though but like but salad is a really great place for people just to start getting comfortable like tasting as you go And And adding
0: crunchy, adding like, you know, different elements, different textures. Um, Well, Lisa, so we are not quite at the end because we start every podcast by saying, asking, what did you have for lunch? But we end every podcast by asking, what will you be having for dinner tonight?
1: Oh, um, there is um, a little cafe here in New Orleans called Alma. Uh, A woman, I believe her name is Melissa. She's a Honduran chef. And she has um, this little Honduran cafe. So I'm gonna go and see what she's got for dinner and probably have a little cocktail and then come back, get back to work.
0: <laughs> so are you, you're there, are you there by yourself right now? Yeah. And how, how are you alone? Like when you're like in a city like me, personally, I love it. Like I, got, I, I like being by myself in a new city and going by myself to dinners, but I can imagine some people would be very uncomfortable. I'm curious how you feel.
1: I love being alone. I love traveling alone. I love solitude, especially when I'm trying to work. I, um, I've not yet figured out how to balance writer's work with my life yet. It's really mm-hmm. hard for me. Like I need space. Like, I'm like I'm covered up in books right now. Yeah. And basically it's like me, a French press. <laughs> and I've got a giant sketchbook that I'm just like, hang on the wall and write ideas and I just sort of need that time to be alone and when I'm traveling I especially like being alone um and and this is like my second home and I have a lot of friends here that I haven't even told I'm here yet
0: (laughs) funny well you're about to be exposed when this gets on goes on the podcast yeah
1: my best friend one of my best friends whose apartment is uh, is on loan to me right now um she and I had dinner last night and we'll probably have dinner most nights and my son lives here oh cool yeah, so I'm just going to go get a small sta- snack at Alma and cocktail, and then my son's coming over, and he's going to have my leftover um, steak from La Boca, um, and we're going to visit, and then I'm going to get back to work.
0: Do you mind if I ask, how old is your son?
1: He's 21.
0: Oh, my gosh. Wow. You seem way too young. Like, we're the same age. Okay. I get, Wow. I <laughs> guess I could, I could have a 21-year-old son okay. if I wanted to. I guess it's a little too <laughs> late for that. Um wait, I had another question. Oh, I was going to say, it's funny talking about traveling alone. I'm working on a project right now that might take me on a road trip through the South, like through, like from California, from LA, like, and I'm going to stop in Tucson, I think, and stop in like Austin. And then I want to go to Nashville. Okay. So as a final question, where should I eat in Nashville?
1: Oh, well, the first place you have to go is Arnold's for lunch. You can't miss that. What is it? Um, Arnold's is a meat and three, which I say, and I always think everyone's going to know what a meat and three is, but most people don't know what a meat and three is. Well, I went is. to
0: college in Atlanta, so I, I have a sense. You yeah.
1: know what a is. So for those of you who don't know what a meat and three is, a meat and three is a traditional, specifically to Tennessee is kind of where they originated, um, where you go through a cafeteria line and they have meats and vegetables and you choose um, your meat and your three vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, two vegetables or solely vegetables or whatever you want, but traditionally you would get a meat in three sides. Um, and Arnold's has been there since 1983, this Arnold's family. And I think he's i think he's the best chef cook in the city. He's remarkable. Khalil Arnold has taken it over from his dad, his mother Rose, um, his sister Rose, his brother um, Mon and his other brother um, Franz, they all run it and um, they're an incredible family. And it is like matriarch run. And she's just this powerful, incredible woman. And the food's remarkable. But like, go what, what, what,
0: what would I get? What, would you, what should I order there?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, my favorite food. I have to be different now than I used to be. Um, I mean, everything is great. It really is pick your pleasure. I mean, his fried chicken is remarkable. It's my favorite fried chicken on the face of the planet.
0: Wow. Okay. I'm getting hungry already. Um,
1: his green beans will knock your socks off. And if you're, if if I'm in town, I'm taking you. So yes,
0: please. Yeah.
1: I'm inserting myself into your,
0: I would love nothing more. (laughs) That would be fantastic.
1: Um, the green beans are great. His creamed corn is great. The banana pudding is delicious. The desserts are the kind of sweet that like make your, like make your face kind of scrunch up a little bit, but like they somehow pull it off. And I don't know how, like for someone who doesn't really like eating a whole lot of sugar and doesn't have a sweet tooth, I can somehow work my way through an entire, well, not anymore, but I used That's to be able to like work my way through an entire banana pudding and not yeah. think about it. It's ridiculous.
0: Now, do I need to get Nashville hot chicken when I'm there?
1: You can. I mean, uh, y- yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> go, we have go. it
0: here in LA now because we have yeah. um, flame <laughs> in whatever
1: go to Bolton's. Bolton's is really the only one that's doing it in the same style that we all kind of grew up like came up with it like I mean I've only been in Nashville for 20 years but like the original hot chicken experience was like this very particular sort of like you would go and you you know you would go and wait in this long ass line and go into this little dive you know restaurant kind of thing and get this really incredible chicken that was being fried like in the moment and given to you and um but the thing about Bolton's here's the trick though like you go to Bolton's the hot chicken is good but the hot fish sandwich is the move
0: Ooh, so, yeah, yeah.
1: But if you make it to Bolton's, you really actually should get the hot fish sandwich.
0: <laughs> I will. I mean, okay. And so very quickly, like we got Arnold's, we've got Bolton's, anything else I got to go to when I get, good? I mean, um, I'm going to ask you off the record, but I feel like people who are listening may be yes. traveling to Nashville. A
2: restaurant
1: called Peninsula that's a delicious um, Spanish tapas style um, and the owners are great and it's this small little kitchen and the food that comes out of that kitchen. It is a little bit more like precious than the kind of food I've been looking for in the last couple of years, but fuck, it's delicious. Mm -hmm. Like, and he makes, he's got a gin and tonic menu and, and it's just like, it's a husband and a wife and three guys in the kitchen. That's it. And like, that's their staff. They're open like three or four days a week and they crank out some of the most beautiful food that I've eaten in Nashville in a long time really well,
0: this is like a perfect place to stop because now I'm going to go google that place and get ready to go there Lisa this was such a delight I feel like we're best friends already and I know <laughs> a ther- therapist and a patient shouldn't be friends but I think it just happened so
1: so and I you know I think like we can maybe just dissolve our therapist patient relationship and go straight into
0: yeah <laughs> let's do it well if you're ever in LA look me up and I'll definitely look you up and I'm in Nashville yeah,
1: let me know when you get to town
0: okay well good luck on the writing and enjoy New Orleans
1: Thank you. I hope I see you soon. All
0: right. Take care. Bye.
1: ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we
0: recommend.